My name is Aaron Johnson. And I'm Rustin Perret. Every two weeks, Russ and I get together to discuss topics like ecology, natural history, and evolution. Yeah, exactly. And this time around, we have chosen to discuss the Antarctic. Antarctic. We decided to do a 180 from last episode. Yeah, exactly. Completely opposite latitudes. That's what we're going for. How did you find the research for this for this episode? Oh, this was easy because I knew this topic, but I thought it was in the Arctic. It wasn't. So I already had it on backlog, I guess. Oh, so you barely had to do anything. I already had it in mind. And then I'm like, ah, damn, wrong poll. All right, well, since you already had the topic ready, why don't you go ahead and start us off? Okay, so what I'm going to be talking about is Lake Vostok. Have you heard of this? No, no, I haven't. It's the largest freshwater lake in Antarctica. Okay, I'm assuming it's just a block of ice for half the year, right? That's what you'd be thinking. You're probably thinking, hey, Aaron, how are there lakes in Antarctica? Wouldn't they just be frozen? Well, yeah, I mean, how would a freshwater lake stay unfrozen for any length of time in Antarctica? So this lake is actually almost two miles below the ice. It's a subglacial lake, so it's, it's not on the surface at all. So it's just like a giant like water bubble in the middle of a glacier. Well, there's a lot more to it, actually. So, subglacial lakes were first proposed by Russian scientist and revolutionary Peter A. Prokoptin. He claimed that there could be large glacial lakes deep below the ice shelf in Antarctica. And this was one of those situations where the scientists didn't really have any direct evidence that it did happen. They just knew that it could happen. So, to explain how this works, we all know that water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit or 0 degrees Celsius. Well, water has a unique property where you can alter the freezing point by shifting certain parameters. For example, adding salt to water will decrease the freezing point, which is why seawater can be below zero and not be frozen. And that's why the oceans don't really freeze. When you see glaciers, that's usually fresh water that's frozen, not salt water. Another way to do this is to greatly increase the pressure. So the theory was, if you had an extremely thick ice shelf that was pressing down really hard, there could be liquid water on the bottom. So fast forward about 100 years, another Russian scientist who is using seismic charges to measure the ice in Antarctica also hypothesized there's a lake down under the ice. You can actually see from like satellite imagery, there's a huge indentation where this lake is. You mean like a depression in the ice like that? Like, you couldn't notice it if you're standing on it, but from an aerial view, you can see it. It wasn't until 1993, when scientists used radars, we confirmed the presence of it. The lake is the largest of about 400 subglacial lakes in Antarctica, below about two and a half miles of ice, covers just under 5,000 square miles. This one lake, or all of them? This one lake. It has a volume of about 1,300 cubic miles, or 5,400 cubic kilometers. Which means by volume, it's actually the sixth largest freshwater lake on Earth. Wait, how does that compare to, like, the Great Lakes in the United States? Great Lakes? I don't know where they rank. I know the largest is, what, Baikal in Russia? I believe it, like, subglacial lakes in Antarctica alone, I think it was, like, 15% of all liquid fresh water on earth is just right there under the ice 
You said the area of this lake was what? The area was just under 5,000 square miles or 12,500 square kilometers. Okay, gotcha. So the combined area of the Great Lakes is a little over 94,000 square miles. So not quite there. Okay, but, but that's all of cool. the Great Lakes. It's all the Great Lakes. And to be fair, that is the largest surface of fresh water in the world. Yeah, this one is, it's different in that it's kind of like a, like a finger lake where it's just a big ravine, more or less. And it was named Vostok after the first Russian ship to encounter Antarctica. Okay, wait, why the first Russian ship? Why not just like any old ship? Uh, the Russians were all over this. Yeah, okay. They, guess, they have yeah. a pretty big prevalence in the Antarctic Research Station. There's other countries there, but the Russians will come up a lot in this. What, so they already, like, own most of the Arctic Circle, so they have to own the Antarctic, too? I believe There's... Antarctic is neutral territory, but maybe they're all kind of, like, you know, inching, putting little flags in the ice. Yeah, exactly. Drawing circles in the snow. Yeah, it's just like a giant frozen like cheese board where they're all sticking little like toothpick flags in the ground, you know? When no one's looking, they shift it over so they can get a little more territory. Right, exactly. They move the line in the snow just a little bit closer to the other guys, you know? Poor North Korea. They sent a guy in a rowboat, and he's he, he's really struggling out there. <laughs> he's knocking over flags when everyone isn't looking. Legend has it he might make it one of these decades. <laughs> So I mentioned that this is one of 400 subglacial lakes in just Antarctica alone. You can actually find these in other places as well. Greenland and Iceland do have these. However, Lake Vostok is the largest and it's the most studied out of all of these. Okay, so what do we know about it aside from the fact that somehow it exists? So it took a very long time to figure stuff out because it is under two miles of ice. Makes it difficult to study. Agreed. For a long time, we could only study Lake Vostok through stuff like radar or satellite. But even then, we could still discover some interesting things. For one, it still has tides. It is affected by gravitational pull of the moon, like all large bodies of water. It's thought to have been closed off to the surface for about 15 million years. Possibly has its own island. In this subglacial lake, under the ice, there is an island. Dude, could you imagine if Captain America got frozen in that subglacial lake instead of somewhere in the Arctic? He's not coming out. <laughs> That's it. Right, but could you imagine what a culture shock it would be if he was in the ice for 15 million years instead of, like, you know, 70? Well, I think he'd be dead. I mean, even for Cap, that's pushing it. Hey, man, you don't question the power of America. That is America's ass, and it can survive anything. <laughs> what else? I mentioned it has a deep ridge in the middle. And possibly has volcanic vents. More on that later. And we know it has an average temperature of about 27 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 3 degrees Celsius. So it's not as cold as I thought it would be. You know, 27 degrees, that's only 5 below freezing. But of course, the one thing all scientists want to know is if there's any life down there. And? Well, I mentioned earlier how there might be volcanic vents that spew gases at the bottom of the lake. And we know in the deep sea, these vents can actually have their own unique ecosystems. There'll be worms with unique bacteria symbiotes that can convert the chemicals into energy. 
it's possible that we could have that going down on the lake, but the only way to know for sure is to actually get to it. So why don't we just get a bunch of space heaters and just slowly melt our way down there? Do you really want to melt the ice even faster than it's going already? Well, we'll, we'll only melt a little bit. I mean, just in the name of science, right? It could be cool. It could be cool. I just want to know what's down there. So since 1998, there's been a joint U.S., Russian, and French expedition that have been drilling in the ice cores over the lake. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, can I just pause right now and say that how often do you get an expedition or just anything where the Americans, the French, and the Russians can all cooperate? I'm guessing this and the space station, International Space Station. And even then, I bet things are really tense right now. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like... It's got to be constant tension all the time. I'm questioning your source here, man. I don't, I don't know that the Americans, the Russians, and the French can all coexist like that. Oh, you know, those Frenchmen, they love starting fights. They really do. The, someone French will talk about how they shouldn't, you shouldn't fuck with them because like, oh, but Napoleon. <laughs> and the Russians are going to be like, but how did that end for you, huh? And the Americans are going to be like, yeah, we really don't care about any of this. I like how you couldn't do the Russian accent. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's probably for the best. It really is. It really is. (laughs) A French accent is so easily imitated, but for some reason I can't do the Russian. The American comes quite naturally. I'm not sure why, though. They've been drilling ice cores over the lake. And ice cores are basically just a large pillar of ice pulled right from the ground. These are very useful in studies on ancient climates because the ice builds up slowly. It doesn't snow that much in Antarctica. So like a few feet of these could cover all the precipitation over a very long period of time. So like I said, we use these to study climates a lot. Anyways, the team only drilled about 300 feet over the surface of the lake. They couldn't go all the way because, well, A, they didn't want to introduce any of the chemicals they were using for the drill into the what we believe to be pristine lake. They also didn't want to introduce any foreign bacteria. From this ice column, they did find evidence of microscopic life in the lake. However, they really need to get closer to be sure. So in 2011, another expedition was launched by the Russians. This time they had a new drill that was supposed to close the remaining gap. See, the Russians... Th- decided to go on their own i told you they couldn't coexist (laughs) there's there's a lot of shenanigans coming up with the russians oh i love russian shenanigans let's hear i'm i can't wait to hear about it the drill was fitted with a thermal sensor so the idea was it would stop when it reached the surface of the lake and at that point some of the water would come up into the hole then it would freeze and then they could just drill that newly frozen water and then that's what they needed that's water from the lake That was the idea. Apparently it got botched and the water got contaminated with Freon and kerosene, which we're using to keep the drill from freezing. But we did get somewhat pristine water obtained later from an alternate hole. So now the scientists had obtained the ice core, they could finally test to see what was living in the lake. Hopefully something that can survive Freon and kerosene. (laughs) There's nothing alive there anymore. The Russians made sure of that. (laughs) So I have to explain what eDNA is before we can get to the results. All right. That's environmental DNA. So DNA, of course, genetic information found in all life. This is just taken from the environment that organisms live in. And this could be little bits of skin, hair, poop etc. Just tiny bits of the animals or plants or whatever that's just floating around. So you're just treating the entire ecosystem like it's a crime scene, basically. Yeah, you scan the whole thing. Okay. Usually taken from samples of water or dirt. 
And even though the team only had about half a liter of water, they can test these tiny bits to see what is in there. And they can kind of form an idea. You know, it gives you a general picture. doesn't show you everything because you only get a small sample. But it gives you a general idea. That's the best we got. So one of the most famous eDNA studies is actually from Loch Ness. Oh, were they trying to figure out if Nessie was around? Yeah. Spoiler alert, no. <laughs> they tested the waters, found no evidence of giant marine reptiles, sharks, catfish, or sturgeons, which pretty much covered all the bases. What about giant fish people? Did they find any evidence of that in the eDNA? I, I don't even know what they compare it to. Hmm, so I guess that's a no. They uh, basically just concluded that, you know, there's a lot of eel DNA. They just said, eh, it was a big eel. I wouldn't be surprised if they found like a lot of drug residue left over because that would explain why people thought that there was a monster living in that lake for years and years and years. It was cool. I didn't read the whole study, but they found, uh, they found all kinds of like mammalian DNA, like deer, stuff like that, birds, basically runoff from like the nearby land made it into the lock so you could just test the lock and basically see the entire environment and everything around it so oh, cool. wait that yeah that is really cool yeah yeah just from one source of course they could take so much of the water because they can directly access it it's not a big deal different in this scenario i mean god it probably costs millions of dollars to get half a liter yeah, wow. I'm just thinking about that. Imagine if you could do that with like a swimming pool and like do an eDNA study and figure out who all the neighbors are, you know? Would you want to? You want to know who's pissing and shitting in there? Maybe you do, yes. <laughs> you can tell them to stop. What happens when like you test a neighborhood pool? Or what if it's like a backyard pool? You test it and you find out that just some guy you've never met somehow makes his way into the pool just all of the time. <laughs> yeah and you, and you go out there at like 2 a.m and just see some random dude like sleepwalking in your pool so after the results came back the researchers found a surprisingly large amount of evidence for a complex ecosystem beneath the ice pretty cool okay awesome of the 3,500 some genes sequenced that's a lot about 94 yeah. percent were from bacteria the remaining amount were from eukaryotes so they found evidence of many different kinds of bacteria, and in this case, they match it to the closest related relative that has that gene. So all of these, I could tell you the individual percents, but you probably don't care. It's all upwards of like 95 to like 98, 99% accuracy. So there's a margin of error there. Even being that closely related, you have a lot of wiggle room. But like I said, many different kinds of bacteria. Of course, they did find some that were related to bacteria found near the deep sea vents. So they think we might have a community down there similar to the bottom of the ocean. And that okay. ecosystem would rely on minerals and chemicals released from the Earth's bedrock rather than sunlight, which is what most life relies on today. Okay, so maybe the Russians didn't, you know, mess things up that badly because the bacteria are probably used to some form of toxic chemical. And not yet, at least. <laughs> So besides finding bacteria in deep sea vents, they found genetic evidence for bacteria that live in hypersaline conditions, along with fresh water, extremely hot and cold environments, extremely acidic and basic environments as well. So it means that the lake is not just like, don't think of it as just a pool where everything's the same. It's incredibly diverse. There's all kinds of different microclimates in this lake. Well, yeah, that would make sense. It it's huge. Yeah, it is huge. 
I don't know. When I was thinking of it, I when I first heard of it, I'm like, okay, so there's like some water in an ice block, you know, like if you have an ice cube and it melted a little bit in the inside would be little air pocket. But no, there's so much more going on down there. Okay. Yeah. So this, this lake is roughly the size of like five Rhode Islands. And we know all kinds of diverse creatures they got going around there. Yeah. Like so many species of clams. They do have a lot of clams. They do, they do have a lot of clams in Rhode Island. It's it's a thing. I don't know why. So when we divide life, we can split it into two different categories. Russ and I know you know this for everyone that doesn't. Prokaryotes and eukaryotes. Bacteria and archaea, which are similar to bacteria but just slightly different, those are prokaryotes. Some of the smallest single-celled life forms. Eukaryotes is everything else. So from seaweed to mushrooms to people... If it's large and multicellular, it's a eukaryote. Of course, there also are small single cellular ones as well. But eukaryotes is just everything else. Now, they only found a little bit of DNA for eukaryotes, and that was only for fungi, rotifers, tardigrades, and I believe sea anemones. So not nearly as much as the bacteria, but, you know, still enough of note. But they didn't find anything related to, like, larger animals like fish or crustaceans. But here's the kicker. Did you call them rotifers? Rotifers? Well, you they're, call them rotifers? They're rotifers. I can see it going either way. Okay, they're, they are pronounced rotifers. It's my Maryland dialect. It's a regional one. <laughs> it must only be in your region of Maryland, man, because everyone else calls them rotifers it's exclusive to my backyard specifically (laughs) yeah apparently this former co-worker of mine is also from your backyard because they called them rotifers and it used to annoy the hell out of everyone else well now that's all i'm going to refer to him as just to spite you god damn it (laughs) so here's the kicker So we didn't really find much for eukaryotes. And what we did find is like really small life that also kind of survives everywhere. Like a tardigrade, that thing is invincible. Not super special. But there's much more bacteria. And all the remaining bacteria we found is symbiotic gut bacteria and parasitic bacteria. And that means... They're parasitizing something, right? Sorry, a mutualistic gut fauna and parasitic gut fauna. And that means they have to be in something. They can't live on their own. Right. So they live in a just digestive tract of various animals. So if we find genes belonging to the bacteria that live inside the bigger animals, there's evidence those bigger animals are down there also. And they later found DNA of symbiotes belonging to lobsters, fish, shrimp, clams, two worms, seaweed, and sea sponges, just to name a few. That's like an entire marine ecosystem. It's just living underneath the ice? Under the ice, untouched by people. Wow. Two miles below the ice. Like, people talk about the bottom of the ocean, and granted, we haven't explored that, but most people accept, like, okay, you go down there, you'll see something. You know, it's a bit sparse, but there's something down there. Who would have thought that just in Antarctica... Under the ice, not under the ice like floating on the ocean, under the ice of the actual landmass, there's life. There's aquatic life. Wow, so all these organisms just got trapped in the world's most complicated escape room. 
They're not coming out of there. They're not coming out. They're not coming out of there. They're stuck in there. <laughs> They've been looking for clues for 15 million years. Yes. Uh, but all this came under scrutiny later. Why? So there's a couple variables. You have to take in mind, take all this with a grain of salt. DNA can last a while if it's properly preserved. So if like this DNA was somehow frozen in the ice, oh. then maybe the life down there had died a very long time ago. And we are just harvesting long preserved DNA. Okay. And there's also some scrutiny about the data. Some people claim that the samples were contaminated and the DNA could have come from external sources because you are using such tiny amounts of DNA. Maybe if you have like, I don't know, some like fish guts on your hand and you, you like smear the drill a little bit. If that gets in there, that in theory could contaminate it. All right. And like I said, some of the early ice core samples were definitely contaminated with antifreeze. Uh, there's like a bit of drama about it that I read. I didn't go deep into it, but the Russians still use the same borehole to access the lake after it was already spilled with the freon and the kerosene. So they've just kind of been using like this tainted hole for a while now, and they stand by the fact that it's fine, but we've already watched them spill everything into it. In defense of them, I mean, the DNA samples they're finding is what you expect from an aquatic ecosystem. It's not like they're finding bird or human DNA, you know? If they're finding, like, giant reptiles or turtles down there, then maybe be like, all right, well, that's a little funky. But they're finding what you'd expect to be down there if there was life down there. Yeah, it would be kind of awkward if, like, their DNA results show that there were a bunch of, like, orange trees growing in this lake somehow. Or <laughs> a bunch of Russians. <laughs> <laughs> the lake it's filled with semi-aquatic russians they've been down there for god knows how long there must be all kinds of vodka bushes growing down there guys it reminds me there is a uh, a true crime podcast i listened to and i forget what they called this serial killer but it was a lady and she just kept turning up at all these different crime scenes and she would have been like one of the most infamous killers alive and they found out it was actually some of the wipes they were using in the forensic studies was produced like in a factory where it was one lady who was handling them all. The wipes were not rated for DNA. Like they were sanitized, but the DNA stayed there. So basically she just kept turning up at crime scenes and they thought it was all one person. We traced her back to this factory. Hey, I've been here before. I bought wipes here last week. <laughs> <laughs> and she was so old, too. She's just an innocent old lady. I hope she didn't get, like, an FBI raid. I can't imagine those FBI guys being like, wow, she was right under our noses this whole time. How did we not notice? So the most solid argument for life down there came in 2020 when researchers obtained genetic information from a new and more sanitary hole. They made it off to the side away from the Russians who were just spilling all their antifreeze in there. They wanted to distance themselves a little bit from that. And this time, they found an RNA sequence instead of DNA. Oh. Now, DNA may last a long time preserved. RNA does not. RNA is much more unstable. And if RNA sample was obtained from some large animal, that would suggest that there's still a viable population of the animals down in the lake. It ain't going to last millions of years. Yeah, exactly. So what they found was an RNA sequence that had a greater than 97% match to the Antarctic rock cod. 
a species of saltwater fish found in the ocean, I mean, just nearby. They can actually survive freezing temperatures. And they live in this, like, ice tomb? Well, maybe not the rock cods themselves, because they've, they would have been distanced for 15 million years, but an extremely close relative. And mind you, these guys can get about 20 inches or so. They're not a tiny fish by any means. It's not like we found a fish that's half an inch long. No, this guy's got some size to him. Okay, yeah, so they got to be eating something, right? They have to be eating something, and maybe something eats them. And then this is a pretty solid point that there's a whole ecosystem down there. Not just a little bit of bacteria, because God, bacteria ends up everywhere. Like right. This ha- holds some actual heft. Okay, so then my question is, this lake, it's under miles of ice, but what's beneath the lake? Is it more land, or is it is it like on a, a glacial shelf? The most accurate model we have now is that it goes down to the bedrock, essentially. It's believed that there are volcanic vents down there, similar to the bottom of the ocean, which you'll find. The water is still liquid because of a combination of the pressure of the ice, but it's also, you know, superheated in certain parts. Gotcha. Okay, so then... How far removed from the ocean is this lake? Distance-wise, I don't know, but it's more or less kind of central to Antarctica. Antarctica's not huge, though. So then how did an oceanic fish species wind up in the lake? So here's the best theory we have today, is that about 15 million years ago, this lake was actually a bay. It was a bay 35 million Uh... years ago, and it became enclosed over time as Antarctica drifted away from the rest of the continents. Got it. So all the original life in the lake would be saltwater animals. About 15 million years, the lake became enclosed with ice, and the pressure of the melting ice created a freshwater top layer and a briny bottom layer. They actually think it's both. So it's going to be all freshwater on top, and then is just on the bottom a salty brine. Like a you can see the layers. And that still happens today. You can find yeah. like brine pools in the bottom of the ocean where the water is so salty that some fish can't even swim in it. And normally when you have those kinds of halaclines don't persist because there are other forces that mix the water up. But in a lake like that, there's just nothing that would mix it, right? Like it would just kind of stay... I don't think so. I mean, there's, there's I mean, tides, guess... but there's no real current. It's enclosed for the most part. It might be connected to some of the other lakes. There actually might be rivers and streams as well. But that's a whole other thing. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, so many parts to this, and there's still so much we do not know. Personally, I think I am leaning towards there is life down there. I think the rock cod that they found, the DNA from that, is pretty solid. But the sad reality is we'll likely never know. There's no way for us to get anyone. There's no way we're getting a person down there. Unless we somehow find the Russians have beat us to it. <laughs> they pick their smallest researcher and they cover him in antifreeze and they kind of just get a really big plunger. Or like they do they drill that hole and yeah, they just get him all greased up with kerosene and just slide him right down. He fits right through. And they got a rope at the end to tug him back up when he finds something cool. Oh, it'd be so cool if they pulled him up like a huge bite mark out of him. That's where the megalodon was. It's been there the whole time. What? Okay. Definitely. Actually, I think there was like a horror movie about like an octopus down there. That wouldn't surprise me at all. The last thing I have to mention is that because of the possibility of life down there, 
It makes scientists think that even frigid planets covered in the ice could have life deep beneath the ice shells. Yeah. If it had the same parameters, that would give you liquid water, a fairly constant temperature. Go get life. Who knows? Was it one of Saturn's moons that they were looking at in particular? I thought it was. Yeah, yeah. I I don't remember what it's called. But yeah, that's my piece. There's life under the ice, and the Russians keep pouring antifreeze into it. Ah, Classic Russians. We need to revive Ronald Reagan. Have him yell at the Russians to stop doing what they're doing in Antarctica. Fill in this hole. (laughs) Exactly. Anyway. All right. So. What you got for me? All right. I'm not going to lie. I went straight down Aaron Johnson Lane for this episode. So. In the best way possible, I hope. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. In terms of our interests in ecology, because I am talking about an insect this time around which is definitely more your area than mine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So if you have any expertise on this one, feel free to chime in. I am talking about one of the only terrestrial animals to live on Antarctica year-round. Do you have any idea what it could be? I don't know its name, but I I know what it is. You can do the reveal. All right, so it's a species of Antarctic midge known as Belgia Antarctica. Just to kind of give a bit of background on the challenges that are facing the Antarctic, they're pretty similar to the ones facing the Arctic. You know, cold, dry, lack of food. So pretty much anything that wants to stay there year-round has to find a way around those obstacles. The best way for me to kind of explain how this midge gets around those obstacles is to just kind of take you through its entire life cycle. It's going to be a sad one, that's for sure. (laughs) It is and it isn't. I'll let you decide near the end what you think about it. It's living in Antarctica. It is, it kind of has to at this point, so I don't know if they'd consider it sad that they live there. I'll explain that near the end. Anyway, so I'm going to start with an egg, because yes, the egg did come before the chicken, so it makes sense to start with an egg. These eggs are laid by a female midge who will try to put the eggs in a moist area, you know, an area where, you know, algae or something like that might grow eventually. Before the eggs hatch, the female covers the eggs with a substance that I like to call the miracle goop because it is... It's a scientific term, of course. It is, Yeah, exactly. It is absolutely amazing. It protects the eggs from dehydration, number one. So it keeps them moist. It also keeps them at a constant temperature. Very important in the Antarctic. And once the eggs hatch, it provides the young larvae with a food source. And the best part is there's actually a Russian scientist with a little <laughs> dropper full of it. And he he covers each one. It's antifreeze. That's what it is. It's a very tough job. He's very diligent. He makes a little hole for each one. He should be earning a lot of overtime one of these days. Anyway, but yeah, seriously, can you think of like a more useful substance in the world? Something that keeps you hydrated, keeps you at a constant temperature, and is a food source. Maybe honey, if I don't mind being sticky. Well, I do mind being honey, <laughs> so I'll stick with the miracle coop, okay? <laughs> Eventually, the eggs hatch. The larval stage begins. As I kind of alluded to, the larvae pretty much just feed on whatever might be edible around them. Any kind of decomposing crap they can find. They're only a few millimeters long, so they don't need a lot of food. And the larvae will take a few years before they can fully mature. They will need to survive multiple winters which they do as by far being... as uh, midges go that's a pretty long life 
It is. But if you think about it, in the Antarctic, there isn't a lot of food. So they don't have a lot of resources to develop. So it, they have to take a lot longer to do that. You know what I mean? So that's why they have a longer lifespan. Antarctic midge larvae can survive temperatures of around minus 15 Celsius. So they do this by increasing concentrations of natural solutes in their body. You know, salts, sugars, whatever. One of which is urea. Heyo! Which is a tie into the last the Pee blood. It keeps you going. These guys in the Greenland sharks really know how to survive winters. And they know that concentrated piss is the way to go. So we shouldn't eat them. No. No, you should not. Although I doubt who would, who would really want to. They're only a few millimeters long. Like, you're not going to get any kind of meal out of Antarctic midges. Perhaps a tangy handful, you know? Some seasoning in a pinch. Yeah, exactly. A little hors d'oeuvre, if you will. So the other thing they do is they also lose a lot of water in their body because it becomes a liability, right? Because it could freeze and kill them. They'd just be like a little a little, little frostbitten grain of rice sitting in, in Antarctica if they had all their water. They'd get rid of a lot of that. And they also prevent their proteins from denaturing in the cold by having a huge supply of heat shock proteins ready to help them, their proteins maintain their structure. This happens with proteins when a lot of them encounter extreme temperatures, right? Proteins have a very specific shape, you know, they have to have in order to be functional. One protein with a specific amino acid sequence can occupy any number of different shapes. And Aaron, I know you know this, but I'm explaining it for other people. No, absolutely. This actually goes back to the brain episode. With the prions. Absolutely. This is another great tie-in. So basically, when proteins encounter extreme temperatures, they lose their shape. Because a lot of the bonds between different areas of the protein that hold it together are broken. This happens in heat because the molecules start moving around a lot more quickly. And things kind of unfold and spread out. But it also happens in the cold, too. Right? Because the water will like freeze and become more dense. And that'll mess up the shape of the protein. The midges counter this action by having a whole nother set of proteins that are designed to operate at low temperatures that surround their functional proteins and basically shield them from the effects of, of denaturation, of basically becoming completely undone by cold temperatures. So it's really cool. These are heat shock proteins that exist in a lot of other organisms as well, too, that have to endure really extreme temperatures. It's one of the ways that extremophile bacteria survive in heat, because they have these proteins that that protect other proteins it's basically the those proteins are basically like a giant winter coat and keeping it nice and snug exactly all cozy so all of this sounds pretty impressive right these are all really remarkable adaptations well turns out they're not quite remarkable enough because the andean air temperatures in the antarctic can reach minus 40 degrees celsius the midge larvae can only survive up to minus 15 they can't even do that right they can't so, but they don't have to, as it turns out, because there's a little Russian scientist with coats, and he knits one for each midge. Not quite. There's a little Russian scientist who's passing out mini space heaters all over Antarctica. Oh, you know what? <laughs> the Antarctic midge. That's what they call the tiny Russian that goes down the borehole. <laughs> <laughs> they loop him up real good and shoot him down. He's just in charge of all the research down there. He he runs the whole show. 
<laughs> He's going to have a really remarkable life cycle. <laughs> what the Antarctic midges do, though, is they actually manage to burrow into the snow and the ground, which actually, as it turns out, that area doesn't fall below 10 degrees Celsius throughout the entire year. So they're comfortably within their acceptable temperature range if they just kind of, you know, burrow into the snow a little bit like the Russians do. I mentioned earlier that the midges get rid of a lot of their water because it could freeze and kill them. They are able to do this because they are remarkably resistant to dehydration. This is also very helpful because, as you mentioned earlier, Antarctica is very dry. Yeah, it does not precipitate much there at all. I don't think it ever rains, but it doesn't snow much. Absolutely not. The larvae can survive up to 70% water loss. All their water in their body. I'm just going to let that sink in for a second. They lose in 70% of their body water. They're going to look like little boogers at the end of it. No, they're going to look like what happens to a booger after it's been left out for like a day. Just a little dry stain on the wall. <laughs> Is this coming from personal experience? <laughs> Come on, man. We were both toddler age boys at one point. You're telling me you never <laughs> left a booger out too long. Anyway, yeah. Seriously, though, imagine if a human being lost more than two-thirds of its water. Like, you'd look like the guy at the end of The Last Crusade who picked the wrong chalice. You'd just be all shriveled up and... He chose poorly. He chose poorly. He does not belong in a museum. All these abilities, they allowed the midges, or at least the midge larvae, to employ a survival strategy known as cryoprotective dehydration. Basically, the combination of being very drought-resistant and very cold-resistant allows them to lose a lot of their water to survive cold temperatures. Anyway, so after they do this for a couple years, the larvae are ready to become adults, which they get to do for only about a couple weeks, during which time they get laid, lay eggs, and the whole process starts all over again. They gotta make the magic goop, though. They do have to make the magic goop. And what's crazy about the adults is that the adults don't even have functional mouth parts. Aww. And the adults also don't have wings. Think about a lot of other species of insect with similar life cycles where, you know, they spend most of their life as a larvae and then, you know, they become a, a larger, you know, adult with more appendages that's supposed to now mate and produce more eggs and larvae. Those adults, or at least the adult forms, have wings so that they can transport and move around a lot more. These guys don't. The idea there being that if they had wings, they'd just get blown around all over the place and it would be a liability. So they got to stay close to the ground. You know, they don't have mouth parts. So basically, they're just walking around trying to get laid for a couple weeks. Which makes the life cycle of our Russian lake explorer much more interesting. Because he goes in as a larvae, survives down there for a couple winters, comes back up and just really needs a date, you know? Really needs a date. Preferably someone that knows sign language. He can't communicate very well. No mouth. <laughs> well... He, he does have, he's not able to eat anything. They're not going to be able to go to a restaurant. You know, he could talk, probably. Probably. Can they, can these flies talk? No. But I mean, you know, they, they do have like pheromones and stuff. So he smells good. That's all he needs. He does, yeah. He's, he's, oh yeah, he's got a real, he's got a real magnetism to him. <laughs> it's hard to resist. He smells good and he can walk and uh, that's about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's got three weeks. Yep, yep. Basically, here we have bugs that 
freeze themselves in cryosleep to return stronger than ever at the end of their lives. So I officially would like to dub these bugs, these insects, the Bond villain bugs. Because that's basically what all James Bond's villains do. They try to freeze themselves. Or at least that's what Dr. Evil did. Dude, that's the only one I know. <laughs> I did watch The Hat Guy. You did? Yeah, it was What'd lame. No, it, oh, come <laughs> it on. No. Ah, oh, it's so cool, though. He throws a hat. Cuts off the, the marble head. It's so cool. It's classy. Come on, man. It's not classy. It'd be so much cooler if he had a gun. Give him a cool gun or laser or something. Just no, a hat that's sharp. He's he's distinguished. It makes him unique. It sets okay, him apart. Being unique doesn't also mean you're not like a complete loser. Okay, but imagine this. Like every year, you know, all the henchmen have a huge convention, right? All those henchmen show up, you know, they're these big, burly, muscular guys. And they all have these huge guns, and they're all look going around like, so what'd you do this year, you know? How many action heroes did you almost kill? You know, that kind of stuff. This guy, this one guy just shows up in a crisp suit and a bowler hat with a cane, and is just walking mm, around. Sharp hat. He's walking around, like, and everyone's looking at him like, what is this guy all about? What is this guy all about? Why is he even here? And then somebody really pisses him off, and he just flings the hat. And the guy loses his head, gets instantly decapitated, and everyone else just like looks at him like he's the craziest person in this room. The hat doesn't come back, though. It might. You don't know that. No, I watched the video. It, it gets stuck in like a wall. It doesn't come back. And if it does, how would he catch it? It's a one-time use. It's stupid. Okay, but no one sees it coming. It doesn't have to be more than a one-time use. He relies on the element of surprise. Uh, I guess it doesn't, unless he's fighting more than two people at any given moment. Alright, well, maybe he's not. All I'm saying is it, it looks really cool. You can't deny that. I, I can, it's just a hat that's sharp. We're moving past this. <sighs> you and your distaste for hats. Anyway. As I alluded to earlier, what's really interesting about the species of midge is that they actually need the cold. They actually die at temperatures of 30 degrees Celsius. Yeah, they can't handle that kind of heat. No, I guess they're just not built to operate at a high temp. Not at all. So yeah, they're like really, really resilient to cold temperatures, but all that comes at the expense of not being able to tolerate your average summer day in the Northern Hemisphere. At the cost of being able to enjoy any weather ever. Yeah, they're never going to the beach. Furthermore, the energy that they save during cryostasis in winter also means that they have more energy during the breeding season once they become adults. So the adults don't have to focus on eat, don't eat anything. You're going to want all the energy you can get. You can't get right. any more. Right, exactly. And this kind of goes back to them having a longer lifespan than most other insects of this kind of type and, and life cycle. Just conserve energy. They're just kind of sitting there like looking like little mouse turds in the snow for most of their life. The point that I'm getting at here is that warmer winters in the Antarctic, rather than, you know, maybe making their lives a little easier and allowing them to kind of branch out and eat more food throughout the year, could actually spell doom for them because their life cycle would get interrupted by those different temperatures. And eventually, further way, way, way down the line, if it got to that point, it could actually kill them if it got to up to 
30 degrees Celsius. Start loading up your freezers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. The midges will survive in your freezer and just be loving life. I mean, let's be honest. There's broccoli in the back. You're not going to touch it. Might as well let them. Oh, yeah. No, there's there's definitely that one bag of frozen peas that you have used to ice your balls at least three times. <laughs> You've never cracked it open. Plenty of injuries, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You never got a you never got a proper ice pack, but those peas, man, you got a real bond with that bag of peas. That's my piece. Those are the Antarctic midges, Belgia Antarctica. Yeah, the only thing I would add is because I knew a little bit about these. One, they're technically the largest terrestrial animal in Antarctica. Yes, they're not just the. I think they're the only one. They're the largest, because everything else there is relying mainly on the ocean for food. Right. Technically, there is another insect species that is endemic to Antarctica, but Belgia Antarctica is the only species that is only found in Antarctica. That other native Antarctic species is also found in very southern areas of South America, like around Patagonia. Okay, and is that also a fly? I believe so. I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah, because I know that makes flies one of the very few animal groups that can be found on every continent. Yes, it does. All right, so what are we thinking for next time? I know you had something that you were very passionate about. Are you ready for that one? Exactly. And in doing research for this episode and learning more about this particular midge species, one of the things that I came across was the way in which it was discovered or the first known people to encounter these Antarctic midges in the wild. That kind of led me down a different rabbit hole about that expedition. I'm proposing that for next episode, we talk about crazy scientific expeditions. Okay, I like that already. Those are my favorites. We've all heard about Darwin and the Beagle and those kinds of things, but there have been so many other wacky scientific expeditions that were basically just led by some guy who had a lot of money and really wanted to go someplace crazy and learn shit or it was a complete accident i mean go back to the the coelacanth episode one look at that exactly so i'm that's my idea for next episode is wacky scientific expeditions okay i'm down for that i'm game yes because the only thing for me that was actually crazier than learning about how the hell these midges survive in the winter was learning just a little bit about the people who discovered them and that trip. Sounds good. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review and a follow on your podcast app of choice. If you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can contact us at souppodpodcast at Twitter or theprimordialsouppod at gmail.com. All right, sounds good. Join us in a couple weeks when we talk about all those crazy scientists. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. See you all next time. All right. Bye.